word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> For the past few months, we've been in a series of sermons entitled, <clears throat> Follow Me. <clears throat> we recognize those words, follow me, as Jesus' invitation to those he called to be his first disciples. And it says they dropped everything and they followed Jesus. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out for them what it means to be one of his followers. The title of today's message is Careful Considerations. Certainly all of Jesus' words are significant. These words of Jesus that we read today are of utmost significance. And Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. <clears throat> Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. <clears throat> Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Let's pray. Jesus, without... You, there would be no salvation. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you, Father, that there's absolutely nothing we can do to earn salvation, for you paid the price in full. It is a gift. With that gift comes the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit, Father, comes that desire to follow you, to please you, and not only that desire, but the power a new nature, a new nature that hungers for the things of God. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us enough to let us know whether we're on that road or whether we're only deceiving ourselves. Today, Father, give us the ability by the power of your Holy Spirit to, with your eyes, look upon our own hearts to see where we are in our walk with you and to make those course corrections that are needed for us to call ourselves followers of Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. 
that there are only two ways stands at the heart of Jesus' teaching. In a world where there are 170,000 different ways to customize your Starbucks drink, this is not an easy word for our generation. We want many ways, not two. The fact that we live in a world that has 8 billion people has somehow dulled our sensitivity to the fact that there are only two ways. In our world, people will tell you that there are many ways. And that the way that is right is the way that is right for you. Jesus says there are but two ways. Now either Jesus' teaching must bow before our generation or our generation must bow before Jesus' teaching. And I want you to notice with me as we begin the conclusion of this message called the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus calls all who would consider to enter the kingdom of heaven to first of all consider the gate. Consider the gate. In verses 13 and 14, the scripture says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. But there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Now the gate that Jesus speaks of here is the exclusive nature of God's kingdom. And the road that he speaks of here speaks of the duration of life of those who seek to do the will of the Heavenly Father. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus clearly sets before us what? Two gates, two roads, you look at it. He speaks of two crowds, he speaks of two destinations. Now we each confront two gates. One is narrow and easily missed. Indeed, it must be found by searching, and few, he says, actually find it. The narrowness of the gate can be can be compared to a needle's eye. And that suggests to us that there must be things that are dropped or left behind in order to enter in. On the other hand, we can enter the wide gate without dropping anything at all. He also speaks to us about two roads. Two roads correspond to the two gates. One's spacious, it's roomy, it allows great freedom to roam, but the other, he says, is restricted. It's narrow. It calls for exact care. And he also speaks of two crowds. On the broad road are the many, on the narrow road are the few. And he speaks of two destinations. Fewer on the road to life. Many are on the road to destruction. As we walked through Israel, 
the contrast was striking between the Jewish villages and the Roman cities that were imposing and large. Headquarters for Jesus was in Capernaum, which is located on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. The city of Bethshehan is located to the south. In the city of Capernaum, which Jesus called headquarters for his ministry for most of that three-year period, much of what we read about is in this area. You could walk through that town and you could see the village and you could see the houses that are small, made out of basalt, and they are closely fit together and... Rooms are added to them as the family grows. And in the center of the city was the synagogue. And this tells us something about Jewish life. It tells us that for the Jewish people, faith and family were what was central in their lives. In contrast, 31 miles to the south of Capernaum, and 22 miles to the east of Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown, is the city of Bethshehan. Now, I brought some pictures that uh, were taken that uh, I am like last place when it comes to taking pictures with an iPhone, but I'm rather proud of these. And... Um, as you look at these particular photos, you can see some things about this Roman city, Bethshehan, that marks it as being different from those Hebrew cities. You can see through that picture that there was a wide street. By the way, these are ruins of the city, and this is toward the last of the civilizations uncovered. Do you know in this location, by the way, that there were 12 different civilizations as they've gone down lower and lower that they have uncovered in this place. Now, there's a picture of a hill to the side of it that is actually the location where Saul and his sons were hung on a wall by the Philistines. That is one of the upper crust civilizations that existed there. So this is a place of great significance, but when the Romans came in, they constructed this city. It, it was built in order to show the glory of Rome. You, you see the wide streets, the cardo. This was so Rome's army could march into the city, so the chariots could come in, so that they could come in in mass and people could see them. If you go to the Jewish cities, you'll notice the streets are very narrow. They're hard to pass through with great numbers of people. And so we begin to see this contrast between Roman civilization and the Jewish civilization that the people with which the people were familiar in Jesus' time. Now, in addition to this, they had wide gates when you entered into their city. And they had these large columns. And at the gates... They had statues that were to the emperor of Rome, and they also had statues to their pagan gods that were constructed there. And all along the streets, they would have these statues to gods who could not hear, who could not help. The Romans made it a point of constructing enormous gates 
wide streets. And the construction and everything that went along with it was intended to do one thing. And that is to show the glory of Rome and that all civilization should be as ours. Jesus' words suggest to us his familiarity with Bethshehan, with cities of Rome that were constructed all over their occupied land. And when he spoke about wide roads that lead to destruction and how alluring they are, he has this very vivid picture in his mind. And as Jesus watched the wealthy Gentiles enter into the city of Bethshehan, the other Roman cities, he could see that they were clinging to wealth, they were clinging to politics, they were clinging to social position. All of the things that were held out by Rome that said, if you have these things, you're successful. But he was especially talking about what it is like to follow him. It is a narrow, humble path that few choose to follow in contrast to the wide colonnades of wealth and glory that attract the rest of the world. And what he wants us to understand in verses 13 and 14 is a very simple truth, and that truth is this. Following Jesus leads to life now and in the world to come but it requires intentionality. Our son lives in South Nashville. In fact, if I could hit a straight five iron, I could probably knock a golf ball into Brentwood from his home. When we go to visit them and we make our return trip, from South Nashville northward toward Hendersonville where our home is we have some options that we can take in our return trip but the two primary ones both involve I-65 north and so when we head out of that area and we get onto I-65 north as we approach the southern end of the city of Nashville, we have one route that we take where we veer off to the right and we enter onto a combination of uh, I-40 and I-24. If you've been on this route, you know that when you turn off there, there are actually two lanes that go on there. And then amidst heavy traffic, or possibly high speed, or both, bumper to bumper, I mean, you, you ever want to be a NASCAR, just take this route. You ever wonder, what's it like to be a NASCAR driver? Just take this route. So we get off, and so at first we've got two lanes merging into one where we're about to get onto this stretch of traffic. And all of these people in this lane are having to make decisions about what they're going to do. And the decision that we have to make is 
we have to move over at least to the center lane or to the far left lane in order for us to hit our next exit. We travel on this stretch of road for, and I measured it just yesterday in my car. You have seven-tenths of a mile to make this happen. Now, I've done the math. It's over 1,200 yards. You would say, well, that's 12 football fields. That sounds like adequate room. But when you factor in bumper-to-bumper traffic and literally hundreds and potentially thousands of cars that will be in this seven-tenths of a mile stretch, and you consider that the people in the far left lane are also competing to try to get to the center lane, if you're going to make that turn off to the left, if you're going to get to that center lane, Let me tell you, when you hit that seven-tenths of a mile spot, when it begins, you better be intentional about moving over. Jesus says, following him involves intentionality. We notice he also calls us to consider the guides. Look at verses 15 to 20. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Now, I didn't mention this, but I've been around long enough to know that typically Baptists, when we read this passage of Scripture, we think about eternity. Eternity is not mentioned in this text, by the way. It is certainly implied there. This text can be used to talk about that. Jesus is talking about, how do you recognize those that are following me now? Now, we know when salvation takes place, what happens is there's an exchange. I exchange my life of sin for Jesus' life of righteousness. When God looks at me, what does he see? He sees Jesus' righteousness put to my account. Jesus is not talking about this kind of righteousness here. Works do not save us, but Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. In other words, what he's talking about is he's talking about people who already are in the kingdom. How do we recognize them? What is the fruit evident in their lives? And notice what he says. He's warning us of a real danger, not a remote possibility. And the danger that he warns us of is that there are some would-be guides who are dangerous and deceptive. Last time I checked, wolves wearing sheep's clothing didn't have signs around their necks. Wolves are rapacious, hungry, 
and ferocious. Their very nature is to destroy rather than to protect. Their presence in the flock is purely for grasping selfish motives. Now, in light of that, Jesus calls for a deliberate act. We're to carefully discern those would-be guides along the way. The realm of that discernment discernment is to be their fruit. It's not easy to recognize a wolf in a disguise, but one can easily tell by the fruit that their life bears. And so Christ illustrates this plainly both from the realm of nature and that of human nature. And as we have seen Jesus in this very message talk about some of the fruit that we should see in those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, who have entered through the gate, who are walking on the narrow road. Remember he said in his message, look for the person who has the what? Remember? The good eye. The one who is gracious. The one who is generous. The one who is not self-seeking, but the one who loves others as they love themselves. Who doesn't build a wall around themselves and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but blocks out the needs of the rest of the world. Their eyes are open. He says, you will know them by their fruit. Do they have a good eye or a bad eye? A couple of words come to mind as Jesus speaks here. The words orthodoxy and orthopraxy. That Prefix ortho means right. Orthodoxy means right belief. Orthopraxy means right practice. Jesus is saying right belief must be accompanied by right practice. And last week's message we noted that as Jesus speaks to us, that one of the things I pointed out that serves as the brackets for the main body of Jesus' message is the fact that from chapter 5 and verse 17 through chapter 7, verse 12, this is the main body of Jesus' message and the brackets for his message contain a key phrase. In 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. We look into our scripture and we notice that in the verse immediately preceding those that we are studying this morning, we find in chapter 7, verse 12, he says, Therefore, Whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For what? This is the law and the prophets. 
Jesus says, if I could summarize the entire law and prophets, what I would say to you is that love for God evidences itself in love for others. This is the summation of the law, Jesus says. Now, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had right belief, orthodoxy. Jesus would say, listen to what they teach. They teach orthodoxy, but don't follow them because they don't practice what they believe. They were correct in what they taught, but their hearts were unchanged by their own teaching. So Jesus says, the way to recognize false prophets is by examining their fruit. The Pharisees knew the law, but it had failed to change their hearts. So don't be deceived by those who talk a good game and use all the right words but whose lives don't give evidence of genuine life change. Consider the gate. Consider the guides. Consider the ultimate danger. Beyond the difficulty of the gate and the deception of some guides, Jesus warns of the ultimate danger. And the ultimate danger is self-deception. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Following Jesus' baptism and wilderness temptation, Matthew records in chapter 4, verse 17, that Jesus began to preach the kingdom of heaven. This, This was his main message. And we said that The kingdom of heaven, that phrase, is synonymous with what? The rule and reign of God in our hearts. Jesus is talking about how do you know God is ruling and reigning in your heart? This is the message that I have come to declare to you. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not going to just talk about it. I'm going to show you what this looks like. I'm going to show you that what the law was always intended to do was to change your hearts. And so as he speaks these words, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. This is his message. Now what we need to know is that kingdom was not a new concept in Jesus' day. This is not a term that he's introducing to his audience. This is a term with which the Jews are most familiar. And the rabbis taught on kingdom. 
And they spoke specifically about the kingdom covenants that God made with his people. Now, the roots of Jewish teaching on covenant are found in Exodus chapter 19. When Israel left uh, Egypt, God brought them to the Sinai wilderness. And we know that Moses went up on Mount Sinai where God spoke with him. And God gave a covenant promise to Moses concerning the Israelites. And he said this, Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and he delivered this word to God's people, and the people responded together We'll do all that the Lord has spoken. And then you know what follows that? God begins to meet with Moses and he begins to write out for him and tell him what it is the people are to do. And he gives them 613 commands. 613 commands. What are the people committed to do? Whatever the Lord says. We'll do it. Now, there were three aspects to rabbinic teaching of kingdom. And so I want to talk to you just a moment about the threefold teaching of kingdom by the rabbis. First of all, the rabbis taught that the finger of God must move. For there to be kingdom, the finger of God must move. That's an interesting term, isn't it? Well, I didn't invent it. Neither did the rabbis. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, when God sent the third plague on the Egyptians, that's the plague of the gnats, the Egyptian magicians told Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, according to rabbinic teaching, in order for God's kingdom to come, God must show up to rescue his people. So the plagues that God sent on the Egyptians, the Passover, their escape through the Red Sea, all of these were evidences or movements of what? The finger of God. The finger of God moved. A second thing that they taught was this, people have to call God by his name. While they were slaves in Egypt, you remember the Israelites cried out to God. They groaned in their hard labor. And the Bible tells us that God heard their groaning. He knew all about it. He had been watching. He saw it. He knew it. And they groaned unto God. But do you know what? In their groaning, they did not call God by his name. They didn't use the name of God as they groaned. You know that it is not until after the people passed through the Red Sea that the Israelites used the name of God. And Moses led them in a song. You remember this? And the song that like, uh, Moses led them in goes a little like this. 
to the Lord. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And as they sang that song, the people used the name of the Lord. They called God by his name. Then Miriam, with tambourine in hand, led the women in dancing and in singing. And as she danced and she sang, she said, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. So one of the evidences of kingdom as far as the rabbis were concerned was that people have to call God by his name. There is a third aspect of rabbinic teaching on kingdom, and the third aspect of rabbinic teaching on kingdom is that people respond in obedience to the Lord. Exodus 19, verses 3 through 8, records that when Moses came down from meeting with God on Mount Sinai, he spoke God's word to the Israelite camp. All the people responded together, We will do all that the Lord has spoken. So there'll be a willing obedience. Now follow me. Jesus came preaching the kingdom. Jesus fulfilled the rabbinic teaching on kingdom. The finger of God moved. Let's look at a few scriptures together. (laughs) Luke 11, verse 20. Jesus is speaking. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The finger of God moved. You remember before the Sermon on the Mount began, how it began, who the audience was, who was coming to Jesus? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, and the demon-possessed and epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. The finger of God moved. And what about the cross? Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says this, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The finger of God moved. 
Colossians 2, 13, 14. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with Him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with His obligations, with its obligations, and that was against us and opposed to us, and He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. The finger of God moved. But also the people called God by His name. What is His name? Lord. Look and notice with me what it says in John 13, 13. You recognize the passage. The passage in John chapter 13 is Jesus' last evening before his betrayal. He meets with the disciples on Thursday evening. They observe where he institutes the Lord's Supper. They enter into the house There is no one to carry out the menial task of washing the feet of his disciples. So Jesus gets up, girds himself with a towel, takes a bucket of water, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, why would this be important? Because unlike those pictures that we have seen of the Lord's Supper, where they're all seated around in chairs around the table, the Jews ate their meals about 18 inches off the ground, so they sat on their green with their feet crossed. They've been walking on dusty roads. Somebody needs to wash those feet. And Jesus takes the role of a slave, a servant, and he washes the feet of his disciples. Do you remember what Jesus said in 1313? You call me Lord, and you're correct. People called him Lord. In Luke 19, verses 37 to 40, Jesus enters Jerusalem the last week before his crucifixion. Now I came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord and glory in the highest heaven. Now some of the Pharisees from the crowd told Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. They called him by his name, Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10 and verse 13. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now lean in close. 
in our churches. In the evangelical Christian world, we have scores of people who claim to have experienced parts one and two. The finger of God has moved in my life. Why? I walked down, I made a decision, I prayed a prayer. I call upon Jesus. He's the Lord. There are scores of people in our churches, and I'm talking about people in this room, who've experienced parts one and two. But they've ignored the third aspect. And the third aspect is people respond in obedience. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? Our text, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 Jesus' own words. Listen up, church. Jesus warns us to beware of an inadequate confession. He pictures those who recognize and reverence His name even with earnestness. And yet all of it is just words. It's not deeds of obedience. And to them He speaks the final verdict. I never knew you at any one time. Friends, the worst deception is self-deception. The question is not, do you know Jesus? The real question is, does Jesus know you? I'm grateful to live in a country and to be in a church where we can extend a public invitation for people to follow Jesus. And I'm going to do that this morning. In just a moment, we're going to come and we're going to stand together. We're going to have a prayer here in just a moment. And I want to invite you to come to profess your faith in Jesus, but not just with words. With your heart's intent, Jesus, I'm turning 
from my sin. This is repentance. I'm turning from my sin with the intent that I am going to follow and obey you. Folks, the greatest deception, the worst deception, is self-deception. Jesus said many are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I go to WMU? Didn't I go to RAs? Didn't I go to Sunday school? Didn't I sing in the choir? I think the seven worst words in the English language, the most horrible words that can ever be heard are, depart from me. I never knew you. So I'm going to ask you this morning to look inside your own heart, to evaluate yourself. And I want to invite you to come to Jesus. And there's some here, and there's some listening online right now. Who you know the language, you know the right words. But as you search your own heart, you would say, I trusted Jesus. I got my fire insurance. But have you turned from sin to obey the Lord? Let's stand together for prayer. Zach, I'm going to ask you to, I mean, uh, pray. I'm going to ask you to come down here and stand, and Andy will be down here at the front as well. Following our prayer, we're going to have a time of singing, but this is an opportunity for you to respond. I'm going to ask you to come today and take one of these gentlemen by the hand and say, listen, I, I'm making a decision to follow Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the way the Holy Spirit is at work in this room right now. Thank you for your words, Jesus, that do not need anything added to them. I pray that nothing but your words will be sounding in our ears right now. And the thought of how much you love us to tell us the truth. And how much you trust us and love us to make a decision. Now, if you're feeling called by the Lord, led by the Lord, drawn by the Lord to come to Jesus today, I pray right now as we sing that you'll step out into that aisle from the balcony down here and come forward and take one of these men by the hand and say, I'm following Jesus. We want to pray with you talk with you about your decision.